turning to the book of Jonah, I invite you to grab your Bible and do the same. Jonah and chapter 4. Jonah 4. Before I read Jonah 4, I want to point out that it really feels like when you read Jonah, when you read it right through, and it doesn't take long to do that, when you read it, it feels like the book should end after chapter 3. It just does. That feels like a happy conclusion to the story, right? The story is Jonah disobeyed God. Jonah fled from God. If Jonah fled from God, it was out of a combination of fear for his own safety and also selfishness, nationalism. Uh, he, he loved the Hebrew people. He did not love the Assyrians and the Ninevites. God graciously chased Jonah down. God administered loving, restorative discipline. It was painful, but it was good. Jonah repented. Jonah learned his lesson. Jonah then did go to Nineveh. Jonah preached a message of repentance. And there was, in fact, a massive revival in Nineveh. Now, you'd think that the story would then wrap up. Jonah would be celebrating that he saw how God used his preaching to turn the hearts of the Assyrians to repentance. And you'd think that they all lived happily ever after. The end. But that's not how it ends. Instead, we get maybe the most unexpected ending of, of any book in the Bible. We get Jonah chapter 4. I invite you to read it along with me, Jonah 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Jonah said, Yes. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should, I, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand 
from their left, and also much cattle. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord for his help. Dear God, I I am thankful for the time, for the weeks that we've spent in the prophet Jonah. I'm thankful for the lessons we've learned and the things that you've taught. I'm thankful now for this chance to reflect on and meditate on this final and strange chapter in this book. And again, I ask for you to help us to understand why it's there, what it says, what it means, and how it is you intend to use these words to shape us for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. All right, well, when the curtain rises on this scene in Jonah 4, Jonah is exceedingly angry. Why is he angry? Normally, preachers are happy when they see crowds of people responding to their sermons with repentance. So why is Jonah angry? He's angry because he doesn't understand God's love. He has no problem understanding why the people of Israel, why God's chosen people would be the object of God's divine and gracious love. That seems obvious. Of course they are. But how is it possible that the evil Assyrians would also be on the receiving end of that same love? That doesn't seem right. And Before we judge Jonah, let's quickly remember that the Assyrians were, in fact, the most ruthless and feared empire in the world at that time. And their evil actions really were that bad. They would be on one of the all-time lists of evil empires in history. They were that bad. Also, let's keep in mind that after the book of Jonah concludes, Jonah's worst fears are in fact realized. After the book of Jonah happens, the Assyrians eventually do attack the people of Israel and they do conquer the 10 northern tribes of Israel. That's 10 out of 12 tribes were conquered by the Assyrians and many of them carried off into exile. It happened. The thing that Jonah was afraid of. In other words, Jonah's concerns about the Assyrians were not made up. Jonah had very real reasons to have animosity and anger in his heart towards the Assyrians. Although in Jonah 4, Jonah's anger isn't directed so much at the Assyrians as that it's directed at God. He says, Lord, I just knew that you would do this. I saw it coming. I knew that you're gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And therefore, I just knew that you were going to extend grace and love to these unworthy pagans. That's why I didn't want to go. And now I'm so angry, I wish I was dead. And God responds to that little tantrum with a question. Why does God ask questions? It can't be that he doesn't know the answer. He knows the answer to every question, so why does he ask? And and Jesus was a question asker as well, right? In the four Gospels, we find Jesus asking well over 300 questions. That's a lot of questions in in, in four short books. Why? Again, it's not because he lacks information. It's not because he doesn't know. I think the main reason that God asks questions is so that we would ask questions of ourselves. 
He asks us questions so that we will ask ourselves questions. When God asked Jonah, do you do well to be angry? He already knows the answer is no. But he's trying to get Jonah to see that. Last week in, in, in the history class that I teach, I asked my students a question. I, we're, we're, we're on a unit studying the history of slavery. And I asked my students, if, if you lived back when slavery was legal, do you think that you would have been a slave owner or an abolitionist or somewhere in the middle, just kind of indifferent to the whole issue and living your own life quietly? Now, you can imagine the vast majority of my students envision that when they answered that question, they envisioned themselves as abolitionists, right? Oh, I would have been an abolitionist. Well, of course, of course that's, that was the primary answer I got. That's the right answer. That's what you're supposed to be. We would all like to think that given the opportunity, we would courageously stand up for justice in the face of oppression. But then here's the next question that I asked my students, if you think that you would have been an abolitionist back then, what are you doing today about the fact that there are roughly 20 million slaves in the world right now? That's more than there were back in the 1700s. So if you think that if you would have lived back then, you would have raised your voice on behalf of the oppressed, why are you not doing that today? And the point here is that we all have a tendency to casually overestimate ourselves and to think that we're better than we are. And sometimes a well-aimed question can stop us in our tracks and confront us with the fact that maybe we're not as righteous as we think we are. Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? No. How about you? How about you who can hear my voice right now? Do you do well to be angry? Well, that's different. My anger is justified. I've been wronged. I've been wronged in a real and a personal and tangible way. And I have a right to be angry until the situation is rectified. Do you have a right to be angry? Did Jonah have a right to be angry? What constitutes a right to be angry? Seems to me that from a human perspective, Jonah did have a right to be angry. The Assyrians were bad guys and Jonah knew it. But that wasn't the problem. The problem in this scenario was not that Jonah had wrongfully accused the Assyrians. They really were that bad. The problem is that Jonah doesn't recognize that he too is one of the bad guys. He was thinking, well, they're bad, but we're good. And what God is trying to show him is that, well, actually, they're bad, and so are you. The only one in this whole story who has a right to be angry is God himself, and God seems to be waiving that right in favor of grace and love. And Jonah sees that, and he says, hey, that grace and love was supposed to be for us, and now you're giving it to them? So, so why does the broadness of God's grace make Jonah angry? I think the answer is because Jonah's heart is divided, and a divided heart is a discontent heart. That's my main point this morning. A divided heart is a discontent heart. 
I think that's the same reason why you and I get angry when we shouldn't get angry is because our hearts are divided. Now, I'm not talking right now about righteous anger, like God's anger. I'm talking about sinful anger, like Jonah's anger, and like my anger, and like your anger. So what does it mean to have a divided heart? In Jonah's case, it meant that he believed in and he served the one true God. Really, honestly, he did. And at the same time, he served a rival God. Both at the same time. Worshiping two things at the same time is the definition of a divided heart. And that results in discontent and dissonance and anger. Throughout the story, I think it's obvious that Jonah recognized that God is God. He understands that. God is God. God is the true God. Even though he doesn't always obey God, he clearly recognizes who God is. He's what, he's what the Bible would refer to as a God-fearer. He is. He gets it. But Jonah also worships at the altar of nationalism. He has made an idol of his identity as a Hebrew, as a member of God's covenant family, as part of God's chosen people. He's turned that into an idol. Now, as long as those two objects of his worship line up and there's no tension, Jonah doesn't feel the problem. Jonah says, I worship God, I'm a prophet of God to the people of God, and God loves us with a special covenant love. Great. Great. Great until God acts in a way that indicates, that, well, maybe Jonah and his people aren't as special as he thought they were. And now Jonah finds himself saying, something that was in my life that gave meaning to my life has been taken from me, has been wrecked. I thought Israel was the unique object of the Lord's affection, and I found meaning and purpose in my life in that fact. And now I discover he feels the same way about the evil and the undeserving Assyrians, and that makes me angry, angry enough to die. There's a biblical word for this problem. Uh, it's called being double-minded. It's one word uh, in the Greek, double-minded. It's, it's di sukas, and it, it, it means, di, di means two, double or two, and sukas is soul, right? To have two souls competing against each other inside the same person, double-minded. Really, double-souled would be a more literal translation. In the Bible, the opposite of a pure heart isn't an impure heart. The opposite of a pure heart is a divided heart. And that's what Jonah has, and that's why he's angry about the broadness of God's grace. So what would be the opposite of Jonah's heart? It would be a united heart. That's the prayer of Psalm 8611. That should be the cry of all of our hearts. It says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truths. Unite my heart to fear your name. It's a prayer. Please, unite my heart to fear your name. A heart that's united to fear the Lord rejoices in the broadness of God's grace towards all people. A united heart, a heart that's united to fear the name of the Lord, recognizes that we are all equally in need of God's grace. It doesn't say, it doesn't act like, remember the older brother and the story of the prodigal son and the gracious father and the older brother in the story? 
When the prodigal son comes home and the older brother says, hey, wait a minute, that's not fair. He, he didn't deserve your grace. He did the wrong stuff. What about me? I'm the one that did the right stuff. I'm the one that deserves the grace. That's a divided heart. A united heart says, oh, wait a minute, none of us deserve his grace. And isn't it marvelous how generous God is with his grace? Isn't it marvelous that his grace never runs out? Isn't it magnificent that our God is slow to anger, quick to forgive, and abounding in steadfast love? Now, it's easy for us to say, come on, Jonah. How can you not see this? How do you not understand that the Ninevites are no less deserving of grace than you are? But that's because it's not personal. This story's not personal to us. That's why we can see it. We're removed from it. They've all been dead a long time. I'm quite sure a Ninevite never did anything to harm you. But just scale it down now to your own size. Scale it down now to your own life. Who are you angry at? Why are you angry? Do you do well to be angry? If your heart was united to fear the name of the Lord, if your heart was fully given to worshiping the one true God and not any other idols of your own making, not even yourself and your own desires, your own sense of justice, would you still be angry with that person or with that group or with those circumstances? Would you? I'll give you a perfect picture of a united heart in real life. This is what a united heart looks like. It looks like this. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's, that's a united heart. If anyone in history ever had a right to wrath, a right to anger, a right to call down justice, a right to seek vengeance, it was the Son of God as he endured mockery, torture, and crucifixion. And it wasn't, it wasn't even because of anything that he did. It wasn't justice. It was the opposite of justice. He was there to pay for the sins of other people. And yet, in a stunning picture of God's grace, he begs for mercy on behalf of the murderers. That's the fundamental difference between a divided heart and a united heart. It's the difference between Jesus and Jonah. It's the difference between, Father, forgive them, and I'm angry enough to die because you forgive them. And maybe you hear that and you say, well, that's not exactly fair to hold up the perfect example of the Son of God as our standard, right? That's not fair. And yet that's exactly what the Bible tells us to do. Ephesians 5, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That is our standard. Now, does anyone fully meet that standard? No. Does anyone have a heart that's perfectly united on fearing the Lord? No. It was Calvin who said, we talked about this last week in Catechism, it was Calvin who said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Right? That's what we do. We make idols out of everything. Power, money, success, health, the opinions of others, justice, food, family, anything, even good things. Anything can become an idol when it becomes an object of worship. 
and when it displaces the priority of God in our hearts. If you say, Lord, I will worship you as long as, and then you finish that sentence, you just discovered an idol. Lord, I'll worship you as long as you protect the health of me and my family. There's an idol. If you say, Lord, I'll I'll gladly receive your grace because I deserve it, but there's no way that I'm going to forgive that person for what they did to me. You just discovered an idol. In that case, the idol is you. The refusal to forgive others is self-worship. It's a way of saying, I deserve forgiveness, but they don't. Which is exactly what Jonah was saying. Exactly. Years ago, I was preaching in a, in a church in Milwaukee. And uh, I, was, I was preaching on the topic of grace. And I, I said... I said something to the effect of, I said, we're all equally, it feels like a very basic and obvious statement to make in a church. I said, we're all equally in need of God's grace, all of us. And then I went on to, to flesh that out a little bit. And I said, the drug dealer who shoots the police officer and the police officer who gets shot are both equally in need of God's grace. And that was just too much for one of the people who was listening. She stood up. She grabbed her things, she looked right at me, and then she stomped out, clearly in response to what I had just said. She was not going to the washroom. She, she clearly was responding to what I just said. Now, I don't know her story. I don't, I don't know who she was. I don't know why that particular way of saying that thing was so offensive to her, but I do know she was revealing one of her idols by her actions. And maybe you'll say, hey, wait a minute, that's not fair. You don't know that woman. What, what, what if her dad was the good officer? What if her dad had been shot by a drug dealer? I've thought a lot about that. I can see how if that was the case, my comment was insensitive. If that was the case, I would, of course, never say that. I would never purposefully call someone out like that. And I would have loved the chance to talk to her and find out what it, what it was that I said that was so hard for her to hear. I, I don't know. I never talked to her. I never saw her again. But here's the biblical truth. We're all the criminal. We're all the drug dealer. We're all the prostitute. We're all the transgressors. We're Jonah. We're the Ninevites. We're Peter. We're Judas. We all stand in need of grace. And until we understand that, I mean really understand that, like deep down understand that, our hearts will always be divided like Jonah's. But here's the good news. God knows what we need. And God knows how to lead us where we need to go. Look at what he does for Jonah. He doesn't give up on him. He keeps at it. The Lord appointed a plant to grow so they could throw some, throw some shade over Jonah and protect him from the heat. And suddenly Jonah's happy. Well, that didn't take much, did it? He went from being mad enough to die to exceedingly happy because of a plant. A divided heart is a discontent heart. A divided heart is also an unstable heart. Divided hearts are unstable. 
The joy of a divided heart is an unstable joy. It's a circumstantial joy. It disappears when the circumstances change. A divided heart says to God, I love you for what you can give me. A united heart says to God, I love you for you. And there's all the difference in the world between those two statements. And Jonah is still in the zone of, God, I love you. I love you for what you can give me. But I believe God is strategically moving in the direction of, God, I love you. I love you for you. And he does that by making Jonah uncomfortable. He appoints a worm to eat the stalk and to change Jonah's circumstances by removing the shade. And once again, Jonah is so angry that he wants to die. And that is the picture of the instability of a divided heart, which says, I am only happy insofar as I like my circumstances. He's angry that the Ninevites receive grace, then he's happy that he has a shade plant, and then he's so angry he could die because the plant is taken away. And again, the Lord asks a question, Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And this time, Jonah has the audacity to answer, and he says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Well, that was an honest answer, but that was the wrong answer. And now God hands Jonah a key to help him make sense of his circumstances and to help unite Jonah's heart. God says, you pity the plant. You pity the plant. You didn't labor for that plant. You didn't make that plant grow. It came into being in a night. It perished in a night. You had nothing to do with it, Jonah. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city of which there are more than 120,000 people, who do not know their right hand from their left hand, and also much cattle. Now, first of all, I know that in this crowd, we're happy to hear that God cares about cattle, right? That's good. Feels good, right? Why does God care about cattle? Why is he throwing the cattle? Well, he cares about the cattle because he cares about the Ninevites, and it's their cattle. It matters. Little things matter to God. Big things matter to God. Everything matters to God. What's he saying? He's saying, Jonah, you love the plant because it made you happy. And you got angry because it perished. Well, guess what, Jonah? I love the people of Nineveh. I love the people of Nineveh because they are created in my image, and I don't want them to perish. And I have extended my grace and my love to them. I care so much about them, Jonah, I even care about their cattle. And all you care about, Jonah, is your comfort and your shade your stupid plan and your sense of justice and your status as one of God's chosen people. What is he really saying there? Here's what he's saying. Jonah, you're never going to get this right until you get over yourself. Isn't that the message that God's been telling Jonah all along? Isn't that the message? Jonah, get over yourself and look at me. Jonah, look at me. Look at me. Stop focusing on yourself. Stop focusing on your circumstances. Stop focusing only on your people. And look up, Jonah, and look at me. Well, did he? Did he? We don't exactly know because the book ends with the word cattle. It's funny. It, it, it felt like when I read it, it feels like the book should end after chapter 3, but then it keeps going. Now at the end of chapter 4, it feels like it should keep going, and it ends. 
But I think that we have good reason to be hopeful that Jonah learned the lesson. What am I basing that on? Well, who was there to observe this conversation between Jonah and the Lord? It's, it's, it's just Jonah and the Lord here. So unless you think that the worm is the one that told this story, you got to believe that Jonah got over himself. Would you want this story in the Bible if it was about you? Jonah had come to the point where he was able to say, well, this story makes me look like an idiot. I come off looking ungrateful and ungracious and selfish and racist. I cared more about a plant than I cared about 120,000 people. But you know what? This story makes God look really, really good. And what do I care what people think of me as long as they're worshiping God? That's progress. And by God's grace, that's the direction we should all be moving. From a divided heart to a united heart. Don't ask yourself, do I have a divided heart? I can answer that for you right now. The answer is yes. Yes, you do. We all do. The real question that we should be asking this morning is, how bad is it? How bad is it? And then ask God to reveal your idols. And then ask God to smash your idols. I'll close the sermon and, and the series with, uh, with this final illustration. The, uh, the interstate highway that connects Pittsburgh to Lake Erie. It was being constructed. I believe this was in the 1970s. And there was one stretch. It, got, it all got built, but there was one stretch that remained unfinished. And the reason that it remained unfinished is because it cut through a swamp. It had to cross a swamp. A bridge had to be built so that it could cross this swamp. And what they did is they kept putting down pilings to try to get to the bottom so that the bridge could rest on that and not sink. But whenever they thought that they had gotten all the way down to the bedrock and began to build, the piling would give way and it would sink deeper and then they would have to drill deeper and put more down there. Now the good news of the story is that they eventually got to bedrock and they eventually got the bridge built. But it was a long, painful, expensive process. Is your heart divided? Yes, so is mine. But hopefully your heart and my heart are less divided than they were a year ago. Hopefully you're a little closer to bedrock, to the bedrock of a united heart. And although I hate to say it, you can believe that God is going to keep sending worms into your life, worms that will eat through the stalk of the shade plant, in order to reveal the idols in your heart. He does it because he loves us, even though the process is painful. Think of the last time you were angry. Just think of it. Call it to mind. Maybe not angry enough to die, but pretty angry. I don't have to go very far back into my own past to think of my own example. I recently found myself venting to the Lord, saying, Lord, do you not see this? Do you not understand how unfair this is? Would you please step in and fix this? And then, not immediately, not during my tantrum, but a little later, I heard a simple question ringing in my ears. Jason, 
Do you do well to be angry? <laughs> it's hard to write a sermon like this and not hear that question ringing in your ears. And I thought to myself, wait, what? Wait. I'm writing, here I am writing this sermon on Jonah, and Lord, you're telling me that I am Jonah? What? I'm the one with the divided heart? I'm the one that worships the God of self instead of worshiping the one true God? Yes. Yes, and, and Jason, I love you for you, not what you can do for me. And I want you to love me for me, not what I can do for you. <sighs> okay, Lord, I'll try again. And I believe that the piling got driven a little deeper towards the bedrock of a united heart. I'm not there yet, but the piling got a little deeper. And that's why I think that Jonah ends in this weird way that it does without any sort of resolution whatsoever. It ends like that because I'm Jonah. And because you're Jonah, and because the story is still being written, it's a story about the broadness of God's grace. It is a story about the inexhaustible storehouses of God's love. It is a story about how he pours those out on people who don't deserve it, people like you and like me. And the proper response to that is to worship the Lord with a heart united to fear his name. Let's pray together. Teach us your ways, O Lord, that we might walk in them and unite our hearts to fear your name. Lord, we all brought divided hearts into the sanctuary this morning. We recognize that. We're not perfect. We're not pure. Our hearts are not united. We don't love you with all of our strength and all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind. We don't. We want to. I believe that's the honest and sincere desire of our hearts. But we're not there. I'm not there. And so I thank you for revealing that to me this week. I, I, I pray that you have revealed that to those who can hear me now. Uh, that's not happy news, but it's it's important. It's important for us to know. I thank you that you're a God who loves us enough to intervene with worms. I thank you that you're a God who loves us enough to intervene and make us uncomfortable. That you're a question asking God, not because you don't know, but because you want us to know. And so I pray that you would help us to see, to identify idols. And I pray that you'd help us to remove them. In fact, I pray that you would remove them, smash them, kill them. So that, so that our hearts would be united to fear your name. Lord, I thank you for the broadness of your grace and the way that that is put on full display in this story of Jonah. I thank you for the broadness of your love, for this infinite storehouses of love that never run out, that when you pour out your love on others, that you, you don't run out. 
There's enough to go around. There's more than enough to go around. How good it is to see your character on display. How good it is to know that you're a God who loves and extends grace and mercy even to the Assyrians, even to the Ninevites, because it tells us that you will extend that same love and mercy even to sinners such as I. In Christ's name, amen.